0: We're going to be back in the Word of God this morning. Back in the book of uh, of John, our series on the book of John. And today we're going to be in John chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles out, open them up to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. That's where we're going to be. If you haven't yet picked up one of these John scripture journals, we probably have another 7 or 8 over there. Uh, We're asking for just a $2, $3 donation to help offset the cost of those scripture journals. We really think this is going to be a great way for all of us to track through the entire book of John together over these next, next weeks, many, many weeks. Um, if you don't have two or three dollars, just take one. We'd love for you guys to have one of those. Um, I was actually looking this week, uh, a, a, a preacher, he's probably one of the most popular preachers of the last 100 years, a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. When he preached through the book of John, it took him 254 weeks. We're not going to preach through it that slow. Yay, yeah, good. Um, we're going to do it in 67 weeks. We're going to shorten it down. But I tell you that to tell you uh, that the book of John is rich. There's a lot to see in here. And what's really difficult for me every week, I dig into these passages and it gets so beautiful and so complex, and then all of a sudden I realize I only have 30 minutes. So I say that to you this morning because I want to encourage you. In your own time, read through the book of John. I promise you, when you read through the book of John on your own, you will see more than we have time to talk about together on Sunday mornings. Uh, The word of God is rich. It is powerful. And in fact, one of the reasons why I don't want to spend 254 weeks in the book of John is because all of the word of God is rich and powerful. We want to learn more of more of the Bible. So... That's what we're doing over the next uh, 67 weeks. But starting in three weeks, uh, we're going to be in our Christmas series, actually. We're already getting that late in the year. Uh, This Christmas series this year is going to be called um, A King is Born. And uh, that's going to be just for a number of weeks through December. And then starting the new year, we're going to be continuing with the book of John until Easter. So that's a little look ahead. But today we're back in the book of John, chapter 2. John chapter 2. And in the first couple verses of John chapter 2, we saw Jesus at the wedding in Cana of Galilee when he turned water into wine. And we talked about that last week, how when Jesus turned water into wine, he wasn't just doing a party trick. Jesus had a purpose behind that. He was making a bold statement when he turned water into wine. The statement that he was making was that the Messiah had come and the abundance of the kingdom was here. Now this week, in the the next passage, we see Jesus coming into the temple, flipping over tables, driving out cattle, money changers, and sellers. And my entire life reading that passage, I always thought Jesus was just losing his temper, that Jesus just was shocked by what he found and got frustrated. But I realized, as I thought about this passage, there's something more going on here. Jesus isn't just throwing a temper tantrum. Jesus is making a bold statement here in this passage as well. As we go through this passage today, we're going to see exactly what that statement Jesus is making, what that statement is. And so what we're going to do today is the same thing we do every week. We're going to read this passage, we're going to pray, we're going to walk through it, then we're going to dive into it. So let me read this passage for us. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. John 2, 13 through 25. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. and Will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Will you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you and praise you for the amazing gift that the Word is to us. First of all, Lord, the amazing gift that these words are to us, the Scripture is to us, Lord, because we know that the words of Scripture aren't just words written by men, but they're words inspired by you. And because these words are from you, Lord, they have your authority. Because they come from you, God, we know that they're true. Because they come from you, Father, we know that we can take what they teach us and believe it and live it and benefit from it. We know, Lord, that if we come to know these words, the word in the Bible, Lord, we come to meet you and know you better. And that's the goal. And so, Father, we thank you for that gift. We thank you for the way that we can come to know you better through these words in the Bible. Uh, But, Father, we thank you even more that the one that these words point us toward is the Word of God, your Son, Jesus. If these words are a gift, then he is infinitely greater. He is the one that we worship. He's the one we want to know. So, Father, my prayer this morning is that we wouldn't just come to know the words in the Bible, but we would come to know the Word, the living Word, Jesus Christ. And that knowing Him, we wouldn't just know more about Him, but that we would come to love and adore and worship and glorify and magnify His name more. He is worth it, God. You are worth it. We pray that you would delight in our worship this morning, through your word. And so we pray this, Lord, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first, a little context. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verses 1 through 2, this is what we read. God says, observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord, your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord, your God, brought you out of Egypt by night, And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God. From the flock or the herd. At the place where God will choose to make his name dwell there. So in the Old Testament, in the book of Egypt, God delivered his people, sorry, the book of Exodus. God delivered his people out from Egypt. And that act happened because God sent an angel into Egypt... Uh, to just, to basically to kill the firstborn of all the Egyptian people. But God made a way for the people of I- sorry Israel to be spared from that plague. And so what God is telling the people of Israel to do here uh, in the book of Deuteronomy is he's telling them to remember God's amazing deliverance of them. He's telling them to have this, this time of sacrifice where they remember the amazing deliverance that God uh, gave them. And so, the way that God asks the people of Israel to remember what, what he did in Egypt is he asked them to make a sacrifice. And he says to make the sacrifice at the place where the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. And that, that might be an interesting thing for us to hear, but when we hear of a place where God's presence is dwelling, that's, that's a temple. That's what we call a temple. Whenever God's presence is dwelling in a place, we call that place a temple. For instance, the Holy Spirit lives in us, so we say that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. So in this passage, what we find is that the the writer of Deuteronomy, Moses, is telling the Israelite people to remember what God did for them, his deliverance of them out of Egypt, by going to the temple and making a sacrifice. And so that's what the people of Israel did. Every single year, the people of Israel, no matter where they lived, they would travel to Jerusalem, travel to the temple to offer a sacrifice, to have a celebration of remembrance of the amazing blessing that God poured out on them as he delivered them out of Egypt. And so that's the context that we have to understand as we begin our passage today in verse 13. So let me read that for us, verse 13 and 14. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So if we could put the map up here on the screen, Jesus traveled from the northern part of Israel uh, in Galilee down to Jerusalem. And this is something that he probably did his entire life every single year. We don't know many stories from Jesus's childhood, in fact we only know one, And the place that we find that story is in Luke chapter 2, and the story that we hear is actually the story of Jesus as a kid traveling this exact journey from Galilee to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So Jesus, as a good Jew, likely made this journey every single year down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, just as God commanded him to do. And so he enters into the temple and he finds two things, or two types of people actually. The first type of people that he finds in the temple are those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And so these people, they were selling these animals as a means of sacrifice. Or, sorry, so that they could be sacrificed. <laughs> they were trafficking in sacrificial animals. And really, this was a service to the to the people who were traveling to town. Because if you think about it, a lot of the Jewish people who were traveling to uh, Jerusalem, traveling to make this sacrifice, we're coming days' journeys away, from, from days and days away. And so, rather than those people having to herd a cow or herd a sheep along with them, they could just get the animal in Jerusalem, in the temple. Because, after all, the animals that had to be sacrificed to God had to be blameless, had to be pure, had to be perfect, without defect. And so if these Jewish people were traveling to Jerusalem with their animals... and their oxen hurt its leg... they couldn't sacrifice it anymore. They would have had to have journeyed all the way back home to get another animal... if they had another animal... and then journey to Israel or to Jerusalem again. So really this was a service to the the Israelite people. This was a service to protect them from having... or to keep them from having to journey all the way... all the way to Jerusalem hurting their animals as they went. The other people that they found in the temple were money changers. And the money changers basically helped convert the money from the region, wherever they were coming from, into the local currency. So very simply, what we find in the temple, and what Jesus found in the temple when he entered, was a market. But just imagine what it must have been like in there. Because Jews from all over the place were crowding together in Jerusalem. They were crowding into the temple to buy their sacrifices and to make their sacrifices. So when you think about what it looked like in the temple that day that Jesus entered, I want you to think Target on Black Friday. This wasn't wasn't just uh, some people milling about. This was probably pretty hectic. This was probably pretty full. And so this is what Jesus finds when he enters into the temple. A marketplace, probably pretty hectic full of men trading in sacrificial animals. So what does Jesus do? Look with me, verse 15. And making a whip of cord, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your father's house will consume me. So Jesus walks into the temple and he wreaks havoc, right? He starts driving out animals and people, tipping over tables, scattering coins, speaking with authority. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And the question I want to ask you in this perspe- from in, at this point, is Jesus losing control here? Did Jesus enter into the temple, was he shocked by what he found, and just lose his temper? Was this a temper tantrum? It's possible, but when you think about it, probably not. It's probably not exactly what's happening here. Because when we think about it, Jesus likely saw this every single year as he traveled to the temple. Every single year, his entire life, as he entered into the temple, he probably found the exact same thing. It's unlikely that this year they just started selling in the temple. So what's he doing here? It's more likely that Jesus, as he was entering into the temple, came with a plan. He came knowing what he was was about to do. He probably, possibly, even left Galilee planning to do this exact thing. So why? What's he trying to communicate? What's he trying to accomplish with this? I think what Jesus is trying to do in this moment by flipping tables and disrupting the market that's happening in the temple is he's trying to make a bold statement of authority. He's trying to make a bold statement of authority by, with his words and with his works, pronouncing judgment upon what he finds in the temple. Because the temple was the place where God's presence dwelt, right? It was a place of worship. It was a place where the people of Israel could come meet the one true and living God. It was a place where they could come and offer sacrifices to become purified before their God. It was a place of worship. But he entered into the place of worship and he found it wasn't being used for worship. It was being used for commerce. It was being used for trade. It was being used to pad the pockets of humans rather than giving glory to God. God's house was not being used for its intended purpose. Yes, they were offering a service, but it was not the place for that service to be offered. So in speaking like this, he's acting in a position of authority and in power. And he's acting as if he has the power and the authority to come into the temple and to do something like this. So, how do you think the Jewish leaders would respond to that? How do you think they felt about Jesus coming in and taking this position of power and authority? Well, how do you you think a teacher would feel if somebody came into her classroom and started teaching her class? How do you think a boss would feel if somebody came into the workplace and started bossing his, his employees around? How would a coach feel if a father jumped over the fence and took charge of the bench? They probably didn't like it very much in fact in the next couple verses we see how they respond. Look with me, John chapter 2 verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, how dare you? More accurately, what right do you have to do what you just did? What right do you have to enter in here and determine how things work around him? And it's possible they ask for a sign because they heard of Jesus turning water into wine just, just up in Cana. Maybe that's why they ask for a sign. It's possible. But I think that it's more likely looking at really what's being said and what's being communicated in this passage. That they ask for a sign here as proof from God that Jesus had a right to do what he just did. They ask for a sign as some sort of proof, some sort of validation that Jesus had a right to come in with such power and such authority. And so Jesus replies to them like this in verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? And that's where the interaction stops. I mean, look ahead. Look in the verses to come. We never find an answer. We never see how this conversation ends. It ends with a question. But actually, as we look into the next few verses, what we do find is an explanation. We find an explanation of what Jesus meant when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Here's what John explains in verse 21 and 22. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So here's the explanation. Here's the explanation clearly of what he means by this. We don't have to try to interpret it. It tells us it right in front of us. What Jesus means when he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, he's not talking about the temple building. He's talking about the temple of his body. He's talking about his death, burial, and resurrection three days later. So you think about it. The Jews asked for a sign. They asked for a sign that he had the power, that he had the authority to enter into the temple and to do what he did. And Jesus doesn't give them a sign. What Jesus does is he points forward to a future sign that he will do. A future sign coming down the road. That the Jews will know that Jesus had the right to come in and exercise such authority when they see Jesus' victory over the grave. When they see his vindication by the Father three days later. When they see his exaltation to the right hand of God the Father. He's saying to the Jews, just wait. When this temple is destroyed and this temple is raised back to life, then you'll know I have the authority to do what I just did. There's your sign. When you see it, then you'll know that I had the right to come in with such power and such authority. So Jesus is saying in this passage, basically, he's making a veiled reference to his death, burial, and resurrection. It is only once his disciples were able to look back at the ministry of Jesus only once they had the full picture the full perspective the full story that they were able to look back at this conversation and understand what Jesus actually said what he was actually saying in other words it's only once they had the right lenses that they understood what Jesus was actually trying to say that he was the temple that he would be destroyed and that he would raise again three days later Now, in the next three verses, John wraps up the passage. And it's interesting. It feels like a whole different section, doesn't it? These next three verses. But let me read it, because it actually ties the whole thing together in a really amazing way. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. So these final verses, they, they show us the result of what happened during Jesus' time in Jerusalem. It tells us that many people saw the signs he was doing. He must have done other signs and come to believe in him. But I think there's a little bit more going on in this passage. Because I believe that John included this last statement to make one more bold claim about who Jesus is. And to understand what that bold claim is, we have to, once again, go back to the Old Testament. We're going to go all the way back to the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Because in the the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 6, we see Solomon, who had just built this amazing, beautiful, grand temple, dedicating it to the Lord. In that passage, we see Solomon bringing in the implements of worship, bringing in the Ark of the Covenant, and then offering a prayer of dedication. And in that prayer of dedication, this is something Solomon prays about God. He says, for you, God, and you only, know the hearts of the children of mankind. Solomon is saying about the one true God, you and you only, know the hearts of the children of mankind. And so then when we come back to John chapter 2, John says of Jesus that he, he knew all people he himself knew what was in man john is applying to jesus what solomon says only applies to god now that in itself is a pretty big statement right that in itself is reaffirming what we've already talked about so much right that jesus is god but there's actually a little bit more than that going on here and we start seeing that when we move on to second chronicles chapter 7 because after Solomon finishes his prayer, this is what we see in the beginning of the next chapter. Let me read this to you. 2 Chronicles 7.1 As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is the moment when God entered the temple that Solomon had built. This is the moment that God dwelt in the place that Solomon had made for him to dwell. So Solomon prays in chapter 6, God alone knows what's in the heart of man. Then in chapter 7, God enters the temple. But in John chapter 2, this is what we see, and it's an amazing parallel here. That this is the next time that this expression is used in the Bible, right? That someone knows, that, that someone knows, sorry, yeah, that someone knows what's in the heart of man. And this is also the next time where we see God visibly and tangibly entering his temple. And we're meant to see the parallel here. We're meant to see the parallel between God entering his temple in the Old Testament and Jesus entering the temple here. Only this time, he's not entering as a a cloud, he's entering in the flesh. This time, he's not entering just to indwell the temple. Jesus is entering to replace the temple. This time, he's not entering to validate the temple building. He's coming, claiming that he is the new temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. So let's boil this down. The temple was the place where the presence of God dwelt, right? Right? The temple was the place where men could come and meet with their God. It was the place where sacrifices were made so that men could become pure. But when we're reading John chapter 2 through the proper lenses, we understand that Jesus is calling himself the temple because he is the place where the presence of God now dwells. He is God. He is the place where we can now meet with God. He is the place where we, by his own sacrifice, can be made pure. Jesus is claiming that he is the new temple. And because Jesus is the temple, we can know God. Because Jesus is the temple, we are pure. Because Jesus is the temple, we have access to God himself. We have been given a sinless and pure state. We have access to the one who has authority over all. And we have access to all the benefits of Christ. Simply by faith in the one who is the new temple. And I just think about how many titles we've already found about Jesus in the book of John already. We're still in chapter 2. So again, as we get to this passage, John chapter 2 verses 13 through 25, John leads us to ask ourselves yet again, Who is Jesus? What are we going to do about it? Who is Jesus and how are we going to respond to him? We've seen yet again who Jesus is. This time we hear that Jesus is the temple. He's the place where God's presence dwells because he is God. He's the place where we meet God. He's the place where we are made clean. But then the second question. How will you respond to that truth? How will that truth change the way that you live in a relationship with Him? Because in this passage, we see two different ways that people respond, right? The Jews, they respond with doubt. But also, many people in the town, they respond with faith. So, the question that we have to ask as we come to this passage is how will we respond? How will you respond? How will you respond to Jesus? Will you trust in the one who has proved his authority over all by his death and resurrection? Will you trust in the one who has authority over sin and death? Will you trust in him for life in his name? Will you trust in the one who has, a, has authority over all of life to steer your life in the way he wants rather than your life in the way you want? Will you trust in the one who has authority over your children to lead them in the way of wisdom, even when it's completely out of your control? Will you trust in the one who has authority over the ups and the downs of your finances so that you don't know when th- how things are going to work, you can trust in him to provide when the times are tight? Or will you trust in the one who has authority over your health to carry you through the years that are given to you and then carry you home when your days are over? Will you trust in the one who has proven his authority over all? Jesus's resurrection proves this authority, so will you trust him? He proves that he has the power in every situation. Will you trust him? And Paul says that if Jesus never rose again from the dead we would be most to be pitied. But The good news is he rose. He proved himself truly God. He proved himself capable. He proved himself to have the authority over the grave. So we are not the most to be pitied. We are the most blessed of all. Because Jesus rose again. So today as we come together at the end of this message in communion, this is what we celebrate. We celebrate the life that we receive. From the God who has authority over all over sin over death over us we celebrate the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life like John explains so well before he lived the perfect life that we could not live but even though he lived the perfect life he took our sins upon his shoulders he took the wrath of God he paid the sins He paid for our sins and in so doing gave us the perfection that he earned for us. And that substitution happened at the cross. That substitution happened when he bled and died in our place. And so when we come to the communion table, we remember and we celebrate that work. We remember and celebrate how his blood protected us from the wrath of God. Just like the Jews remembered during the Passover so this is what we celebrate together and if you are a follower of Christ if you're somebody who's put your trust in Christ's amazing perfect life and his substitution in your place then you are a part of the family of God you are adopted into the family of God God is your father we are brothers and sisters and I invite you to join all of us together at the communion table to remember and to celebrate the amazing gift that Jesus gave to us. If you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, if you've never put your trust in Him, if you've never surrendered uh, your life to Him, I invite you this morning to do so. If, if today's not the day that God is calling you to make that choice, to submit yourself to Him, to ask for forgiveness in, your, in His name, uh, we ask that you not join us at the table. Um, this is something that we do as a family. But finally, if you have kids who are young, uh, we believe that you know the spiritual state of your kids better than we do. And so we pray that, or we ask that you would lead them in communion at the time that you know that they're ready to do so. So I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up and play. And then stay at your seats, and when you're ready, when your heart is prepared, come forward, receive the communion elements, and I'll lead us in the communion liturgy. We pray with me?